Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the drive home, and today we have got a fantastic guest who I'm going to introduce you to very shortly. But before that, how is everybody? How is your week going? What have you been up to? Um, have you done anything fun, exciting, mildly interesting, majorly interesting? Um, my day today was spelt spelt. Well, my day today was spelt T O D A Y, but it was spent. However, um, rushing around and knee deep in at my school's daughter's my daughter's school's allotment. Wow, I'm doing good with words today. Um, getting it all mixed up and all over the place, which is always a fun way to start. So today, what are we talking about today, Harry? We're talking about quite a lot of different things, but we're focusing mainly on um, how to inclusive, um, which is a hashtag I'm sure you've seen trending across social media. Um, and if you haven't, get involved right now, check it out and, and see what it's all about. Um, and I will be speaking to somebody I'm, I'm I'm excited about speaking to. Somebody I was, I don't want to say intimidated because I'm not, I wasn't intimidated by him, but I was very nervous to ask him to come on the show um, for a few reasons. He's, he is a very big voice in, um, in, how to inclusive or they're, you know, talking about inclusive materials and writing inclusive materials and you know, inclusivity in general. And I'll be honest, I don't feel like I know enough. Um, I feel like I need to know more, which is something brilliant about getting him on here today. Um, and yeah, he's somebody I, I very much look up to and is a, a beacon to me of of knowledge. Um, I, I hope I don't build him up too much and he comes on and goes, I actually don't know anything. Um, I know he does know a lot of stuff, but he doesn't only know about, you know, how to write inclusive materials. He knows an awful lot more than that. He has been in the game, the ELT game, for a while. Um, he's he's travelled, he's worked in a number of different places. Um, he is currently... Now, I'm going to go through his his various different jobs that he does have. He's obviously not just one. Um, he he is an author, of course. Um, he is also a teacher trainer. He is the, uh, an assistant academic director. He's a lecturer, an instructor, a tutor. Um, and he's also, um, well, he's an author, as I mentioned before. He's at the University of Toronto. He's very well educated, but he's also very... Um, very much involved in the IATFL Teachers Development uh, Special inter Interest Group. Good words again there, Harry. So without further ado, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring him in here. Um, it's Tyson Seaburn. Is, there's things I missed. I know that. Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit better? Sure. Hey, Harry. It's very nice to be here on the live podcast. Um, and you did, you know, I think a superb job at introducing me overall i um you know it's always it's always a big question mark i think when i am asked to write a bio about myself because i quite like writing bios and i quite letting um like writing abstracts and things like that but um i always agonize a little bit over what material to include in my bio and um 
because you know you want to sound personable, but you want to sound credible as well. So what mm-hmm. what should I say, really? Ultimately, I think I um, started my teaching career in Seoul, in Korea, um, in 1998 when you were just a toddler, I think, <laughs> <laughs> and I also was a toddler, <laughs> but um, I did uh, I did you know the the standard kind of backpacking thing a little bit for a while. Um, I taught at private language schools for most of the time I was in Seoul for about almost six years I was there. And uh, then I did a little bit of university work, which got me kind of interested in, in teacher training and EAP and writing materials to some degree. And then I came back to Canada um, in, in 2003 and moved to Toronto. And at that time, I really didn't think I was going to pursue uh, my career in language teaching, actually. I didn't really think that was the goal. I wanted to be a writer if, if um, I guess I have authored a couple of books now, but at the time I, I wanted to write fiction. And um, so I, I tried doing that for a little bit, but it, ultimately I was drawn back to language teaching. And then so I continued in private language schools um, for several years, and then I was a program uh, manager for a private language school. So probably for the first half of my teaching career, I was a private language school teacher, like so many of us were. Um, and then once I did get into the administration or the managerial side of things, that's when I really started to write materials for the school on a regular basis, and that got me into materials writing. So that's sort of where that started from. And then, you know, long story short, I moved from there to the University of Toronto about 12 years ago, and I've been at um, U of T ever since. And in this role, um, my ability to write materials sort of was pushed on a very steep learning curve because I was the lead of a, of a course, a university course, with like 10 to 12 other instructors were all teaching the same thing, all of my materials and all of my curriculum. And so I had to really figure out how to write materials for, you know, a broader audience to use. And so while I haven't written a course book per se myself, that's more the avenue from which I've, you know, ascertained how to write materials for other people to use. And then of course, as you, as you mentioned more recently, maybe in the last seven or eight years, I've been with IATEPL. And so during that time at IATEPL, I, I really went to my first IATEPL conference in Manchester in 2014 or 15, 15. I think. So it wasn't 15. Oh, thanks. So it wasn't that long ago, but um, a lot's happened since then, hasn't it? You know, so I uh, became the TDSIG coordinator not long after that and have been it ever since. So here we are. Indeed. Um... I'm going to pull all the way back to that thing at the start you mentioned about writing bios um, and Mm. choosing what to write in your bio. And in that moment, he picked up a a reusable cup, by the way, everybody. I can see Tyson. I'm just going to I'm just going to promote his sustainable behaviors there. Um, So he was drinking his morning coffee from uh, from a sustainable reusable cup. So a big thanks to Tyson for that one. Um, On the biography thing, I I always find it difficult as well. I think it really depends on who I'm speaking to or who I'm speaking for or who I'm speaking with as to what I put in there. So I used to just have one, you know, when I sort of started out, I had one bio I'd copy and paste and just use over and over again. 
for all these different things. Now, I think I've got maybe four or five kind of different ones, depending on who I'm speaking to or what I'm speaking about. Um, and what I'd also, so we're going to talk about, you know, how to inclusive shortly. Um, but before, before that kind of inclusivity side of things came to the fore, um, you, as you say, you worked in language teaching for a long time. You dabbled in, in fiction writing. Did you ever get a book written or no, in the end? No, I, I was always like that person that started a bunch of stories that were awesome and then just kind of fell off after chapter two. Kind of, like I didn't really continue them. So I have, a, I have a bunch of more or less short stories that are half finished that I think were great, but I just couldn't keep going. So the fact that I did, in fact, write two books is a miracle, actually, you know. There you go. It's better than having four half-written books. That's certainly, uh, certainly a yeah. good thing. Um, uh, so, yeah, you, you know, when I first kind of noticed you, I guess, is that, is that mm. what I would say? That sounds weird. Cool. Um, when I first, yeah, I first <laughs> noticed it, it was, you know, to do with um, inclusivity and, and that kind of thing. Um, it was probably maybe just over a year ago, probably. So, you know, you had been around teaching, doing your thing, um, and at IATEFL as well um, for a while before that. Um, what what was your kind of focus before um, before inclusivity came to the fore? Well, like immediately before, I would say it was um, EAP, right? So English for Academic Purposes, because that is really my day job and has been for, like I say, at the university for that amount of time. And maybe to some degree, like managing teams of teachers and teacher development, that kind of thing, because that's sort of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's what I would say is like the most recent life of mine, which, and I used to talk about it quite a bit at places like IATEFL. Um, but if you want to go back even before that, you know, I would, I would say it was really just reading and writing, I think were my particular areas of interest. I mean, the fact that I like to write things and and read, obviously, I guess could have led me into teaching the course at the university that I would ended up teaching and leading anyway. So I think there's been a, like a couple of different lives, actually. I really, I, you know, I wanted to say I feel you is what I said there. I wanted to say that because I yeah. really do like in that I, I really can, I can mark out my time as a, as a teacher and a teacher trainer in these kind of almost epochs, you know, from yeah. when I started out and it was, my obsession was with, you know, exams, but making them less examy and, you know, exam mm. training, but not with exam practice. God, that really used to irritate me when I was a, a newish teacher. And when I kind of started doing teacher training, it was all about how to do an exam without just sitting down doing endless exam practice and to actually get something out of it. Then I went into like an obsession with, with pronunciation, which was born from the Delta and, mm. and everybody on the Delta when that would, we were doing the pronunciation section, they were all just like obsessed with TEFL talk. You know, they'd, they'd just come out with it and just they'd be using all the TEFL words to try and impress each other that they know all the TEFL words. And I was like, that's not actually going to be useful at all in the classroom, like with your students. You know, you, hmm. you're going to go to your students and say, this is a simulation, guys. No, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's, it's, so I got really kind of into 
creating materials that were accessible not only to students but to teachers who weren't you know delta trained tefl talk obsessed teachers um and don't get me wrong i love tefl talk you know but there's a time and a place for it and i don't think it's the classroom um with, with other tefl people very often <laughs> exactly that's what conferences are for it's so we can sit there and talk endlessly about tefl mm. um because that's what they were designed for i'm sure um and then after that i did kind of kind of start edging towards um sustainability and and stuff like that but I've, i'm also incredibly keen on you know technology and you know online learning and hybrid teaching and stuff like that that's so funny actually i forgot all about that yeah i would have said the same thing now that you like i did my grad degree at um educational technology but it you know it's one of those interests that is there but you i don't know i just didn't even think about it you know well exactly it just kind of mm. you do it and then you i'm not going to say you forget about it but it kind of goes on a back burner that's for sure and yeah. that's what i really love about social media being able to see all these other things that you know i had an obsession in or i was you know deeply mm. involved in and i can see it kind of popping up all over the place and people still like moving things forward. Well, that's I mean, you you bring up something interesting about social media. I mean, the fact that social media has now been around as long as it has been makes almost a a community practice you see is more fluid than it may have seemed at the time you started social media. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like I started Twitter in in 2009 and Facebook a little bit before that. and um at that time there was like a a i not a renaissance but like a a blow up of elt blogs and things like that around 2010 and so there was a group of us i would say like a dozen or or maybe fewer that were always commenting on each other's blogs and trying to like promote each other's stuff and chit chat about these things and it was sort of our first pln when that term was getting popularized before we went to conferences and things like that and those same people are the people now like myself who not only keep in touch but we have worked together in various capacities over these 10 or 12 years and i can see the evolution all of us almost all of us have gone from like where we were 10 years ago you know in terms of our interest area and where we've sort of ended up in our interest area you know like some of us have stayed pretty constant but others of us have sort of carved a niche in a in a place i wouldn't have suspected necessarily that would have been 10 years ago you know so i can see what you're saying that you know we shouldn't um necessarily forget all these things that we have been a part of in the past but um i guess when you're seeing teachers now like you and me for example like as you say we've only been on each other's radar for a relatively short period of time to me you're you're exactly renewable english like that's who you are and i don't know you in any other capacity basically than being the guy about you know environmental stuff and so similarly it's nice to know or remember you know be jolted into remembering that we all have come from different places and probably this was is the most recent iteration of each of us myself included right so yeah i mean i i i help with a group of local teachers here in seville on on facebook strangely enough it's called 
TEFL teachers in Seville, the Facebook group, clever name oh, that one. So transparent. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I do sort of training sessions once a month um, with the, the teachers there. Now, my idea at first was to make them all sustainability based, but then I kind of remembered that not everybody wants to always hear about that. You know, people actually want other kind of ideas. And it led me to kind of dig back into the, the I used to have a, a blog as well. Um, it was called the Fluency Facilitator. You know, mm. great name um <laughs> terrible block uh, but yeah and that just was basically an ideas dump for me where i just it was my way of keeping record of my of my plans um and my mm. ideas and stuff so i've been going back to that and revisiting some of the old talks and yeah I, i've i did a talk um about a month ago and it was one that i'd created in 2013 and i realized you know it's still relevant. You know, some mm. of the things that I, I were doing then, they're still relevant. It was one of my pronunciation ones. Um, and it's so good to see that, you know, those ideas can still be useful. And they're, um, and it's just nice. Occasionally, it's nice to be seen as not just sustainability guy. Although yeah, I am I absolutely obsessed with that. Don't get mm. me wrong. But it is mm. nice sometimes to be like, well, he does know some other stuff. Yeah. No, that's true. I can understand that completely. I mean, that... It, when I think about the types of talks I did for a long time, which were based on academic reading circles, like I, I sat on that one for a long time. Um, and to think that's sort of in the past, when occasionally someone remembers me just for that and not more for what I'm doing these days, it's surprising a little bit. And you're like, oh, yeah, that guy's still in there. And, you know, that is, you know, where I have a certain specialty, you know, and... I've been asked to do talks about it occasionally, very occasionally these days, and to revisit that material, you know, that I had done at same as you, basically same time frame, um, is interesting to go like, oh, you know, that people still use these techniques that I had introduced, you know, almost 10 years ago now. And it's nice to sort of go through it myself again and like, okay, I'm going to put my sort of how to inclusive hat over, you know, not off the table, but sort of over to the side and focus on the EAP reading and writing skills for a little while. But I have to say that because of the, the inclusive persona or aspect or interest or whatever you want to call it, it seeps back into those materials because now I'm looking at them from that lens differently than I had at the time, you know, and it makes me accountable for, you know, changing things up and doing things on my own material, making sure I am, you know, living out the, the dream, you know, myself. It's funny you say that, actually, because I was, I was, when I was doing that session, the pronunciation session, I looked back at some of my materials and I just looked at it and thought, this isn't in any way inclusive. Like, there are some of the things that I'd said in there that were just like, you know, why did I need to say that? You know, there was no need. Um, I think one of the comments was, so it was all about tone and tone of voice. Mm. Um, and I used the word hello. And the first one was if someone cuts in front of you in a line. And the next one I had put on there back in 2013 was when you see someone attractive of the opposite sex. Mm. And that was in there. And, and I, I looked at it and I just kind of stopped and went, I shouldn't have put that in there. But I didn't think about it even twice at the time. It's just I mm -hmm. typed it in there and that to me was just that was okay. You know, that was yeah. fine. And I looked back and I just, I don't know. I, I was happy in myself that I'd noticed it, but I was also kind of, you know, angry at past Harry for actually 
going in ahead and doing that when there was no need. But well, give past Harry a bit of a fight. break. Yeah, you know. Well, he had hair, so I've got to be a bit jealous. Uh-huh. Of him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, current Harry knows more than past Harry does. <laughs> current Harry definitely does know. But more the than same, past Harry. You know, exactly the same for me too. You know, I can I'll talk about that later probably, but um, you know, I'm not. The, the whole expertise thing is a is a concept I'm quite uncomfortable with, and so that um, that looking back at things I have done in the past or said in the past, I don't think where any, anything was particularly egregious. I mean, I've been gay this whole time, but um, the there are obviously sort of slightly cringy moments in the past, even for myself, you know. So like, but I think you just have to like go, you know, well, we're, we're all evolving. That's the point. If we're not, maybe that's the problem, you know? Yeah. Um, and you mentioned you lived in Korea. You mm-hmm. started your, your career in Korea. Um, I did. Those two words sound completely different to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe not to you, but different yeah. English is there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Inclusive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how, do, did you learn Korean for a start? And oh, for um, seconds, how did that kind of have an impact on you and the way you view the world now living in Korea? Well, I would say the answer to did I learn Korean is a very complex question because, you know, that puts you on a proficiency scale of where is, you know, did you learn it? I mean, I'm very um, on the the plurilingualism boat these days, and so I I had acknowledge a linguistic repertoire that we all have of various languages to various proficiencies, and that might be sort of an excuse for saying, no, I'm not fluent in Korean, but I do possess you know a working knowledge of Korean, especially the alphabet. Like I can I know what they all are, and I I know how they're all pronounced, and I can read them all, and you know, I self-taught myself basically that within the first six months I was there just by reading the subway signs pretty much. Oh, wow. And I mean, it's not that hard, actually. I mean, no offense to Koreans who may think it's a super complex language, but I mean, the letters themselves are not really that difficult to learn. But, um, you know, my, my sort of basics of getting here, getting what I want, being able to do all, you know, communicate that level of Korean was sufficient. But in terms of um, having like a conversation, like a full conversation, that's anything more than like, hey, did you eat? Yes, I did eat. I'm really full. The food I had was this. You know, beyond that, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm very good at it. Um, and that's a bit of a sore point. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> Considering, <laughs> you know, my partner's Korean. But um, I think um, it, it has... It was not the first language I, I attempted to learn. I mean, it was the first language I was immersed in, maybe. But in Canada, you know, we learned French from the time we were little kids um, up until now. So, well, I mean, up until now, up until the end of high school. And so I had that language learning experience under my belt as well. And then German as well, because we had options to do in high school. So, you know, I had some, you know, options and experiences with language learning before I learned Korean. I think that gave me an incentive to learn Korean because I thought, oh, you know, once I can communicate a little bit, you know, life gets a little bit easier, especially when you're in a language or, or an environment that doesn't use the Roman alphabet. So 
it makes life considerably easier. So um, I'm not sure if I'm following where your original question was or not, but... The second uh, part of the question was, how did it have a, an effect on the way you view the world now, those, those six years uh, in Korea? Well, for sure, I mean, living in a different place, as you must realize, you know, totally changes your worldview of, of everything, like in my own country. And it, you know, to some degree separates you from people who have never traveled and makes them, you know, very difficult to relate to each other in, in a certain way. So in that way, it was both good and bad, I would say, but I will never, I think, really ever consider myself one thing ever again. Like I'm not, yes, I'm Canadian, but um, I don't feel just Canadian. I feel everywhere guy. I don't know how to explain it exactly because I, 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 I just don't exactly what you mean. align with this, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so that's definitely, you know, because of Korea, you know, because I lived there a significant amount of time and Linguistically, I mean, it started me to really realize how different languages or different speakers of other languages, at least, don't um, use words or grammar in the same way that, you know, English does or French does or Spanish does. And like it and maybe in, in a sense, I learned that um, language reflects sort of how people view themselves as a society based on what is used or emitted or not emitted or something like that. So, you know, just as, as a quick example, it's, it's not so common for Koreans to use the subject I. So it exists, but it's not quite so common. They often talk about collectively, you know, we do this and so on. And so, that kind of annoyed me at first because I was always like, well, you know, aren't you an individual and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's how we're raised, right? It's I, 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 I. And um, then I realized, well, actually just in the language themselves, you know, they, the, the grammar doesn't really set it up for using I too often. Um, and, uh, you know, whereas we very much do, like there has to be a subject in the sentence for most of our sentences anyway. Yeah. So it, it just kind of showed a little bit of an example of how language actually reflects the way people value or see themselves um, in a way that I hadn't really noticed before I'd lived in Korea. So, I mean, that one way is, is how it opened my mind to going like, okay, well, all places in the world probably have something like this, and we're all probably reflected differently in our languages and, you know, that kind of thing. So I would, I would say definitely that had an impact. Amazing. Um, so we're going to very shortly go for a break. When we come back from our, our break, we're going to delve a little deeper into what is inclusive, how to inclusive, um, and <laughs> how you got into inclusive. And I only think one of those would work as a hashtag and somebody's already <laughs> taken that one. So we'll be back in about four minutes after the, the news and the ad break. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
For the second year in a row, Christmas lunches and concerts in schools have been cancelled in Wales and Scotland. As the UK's COVID infection rates continue to rise, it is feared that schools in England and Northern Ireland will face a similar situation. Scottish councils are following local advice and advising schools to opt for virtual concerts instead. A spokesperson for Highland Council said, The Highland Council recognises the positive impact that concerts and other events have on the wider health and development of children. However, COVID-19 remains present in our schools and communities, and therefore Highland schools have been advised that large events beyond a class should not take place indoors or for a live audience. The chairman of Kent Association of Head Teachers, Alan Brooks, has highlighted a shortage of teaching assistants across the county. He said, It is becoming increasingly difficult to recruit teaching assistants and support our staff within schools. One of the things schools used to achieve was to offer flexibility in terms of holiday compared to other employers. However, a lot of other companies are offering flexible hours during the pandemic, like supermarkets, which means there is more competition. Money is an obstacle in terms of taking jobs. Local authorities and schools are not blind to that. It's hard to see how we can do a huge amount in terms of salary increase without more help. Becoming a teaching assistant is a worthwhile job. Working with young people, you can see what you are doing is helpful and relevant, most often helping the most vulnerable students grow, which is tremendously satisfying. This has been your daily education news briefing. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Thank you very much. And we are back. Um, thank you for, for bearing with us there, uh, Mr. Seaburn. It's a uh, pleasure. So uh, we, we have a, we have a zoom on at the moment and uh, I, I had to introduce Tyson to my dog in that in that uh, short break there. She's been here trustedly sleeping beside me the entire day. Um, nice. I mentioned it was a bit chilly earlier, and so that's why she has to stay off the floor because you know, we have marble mm. floors here. And heaven forbid she, she went on the floor. Uh, yeah. What's her anyway, name? It's nice in the summer. Her name is Estrella, which is star in Spanish. Estrella. Mm. I imagine it's what's star in French? Etoile. Ah, there you go. Um, um, yeah, I wish I could. I mean, as I say, I'm in an office at the university. Otherwise, I would bring in Lou because she's my dog, and everybody likes to get a kick out of seeing dogs, right? Or yeah, I guess you wouldn't see it here. Only you and I would see them. 
Yeah, but we could talk about it. And, well, listeners, know. trust us. There are dogs in our lives, and you could see them if it were not just audio. So <laughs> exactly. And but if you follow us on social media, I'm pretty sure you'll get a glimpse um, on on one social media or another. Um, I know I have seen Tyson's dog in the mm. past. You know, I got one good piece of advice once upon a time. I think it was from Carrie, um, Carrie um, Jones, mm -hmm. that if you should always include a picture of your dog in one of your slides for a conference presentation, because no matter how your conference talk is going, a dog is going to improve it, right? So, like, if it's going not so great, the dog shows up, everyone's like, oh, and then they sort of forget about that. If it's going super great, it just adds to that, and people feel like, oh, what a great thing. And so Lou makes appearances in, in many of my talks just for that oh, reason alone. That's such a good idea. I know, right? I am using that. I'm going back through all of my previous talks that I've ever done, <laughs> and I'm going to add them in just in case. Um, so before the break, I mentioned that we would um, get onto the subject of how to inclusive um, and inclusivity. Now, if you'd asked me, I'm going to say... If a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, um, oh, Vanessa said and cats. Yeah, yes, for sure. People cats. also like cats. Of course. Yeah. Can't forget them. Yeah. I'm allergic to them, but I do love them. But I am allergic to them, so oh. I can't get too close. Um, yeah, if you'd ask me, <laughs> <laughs> if you'd absolutely right, Vanessa, if you'd asked me a year ago, um, what is inclusivity and where is it lacking? My answer to you would have been in almost entirely um, race and probably gender um, and sexual orientation. That would have been my, you know, there's not enough pictures of, well, every family picture is of a happy white family with a mum and a dad and a grandma mm -hmm. and a grandpa and that's it. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, there's there's never representation of the LGBTQ community and there's rarely a picture of anybody that you know is of Amen. a race that isn't white um <laughs> yeah. well yeah exactly um so mm. that for me was inclusivity about a year ago mm -hmm. my perception has changed massively um mm. I'm gonna just openly thank you for that in large parts thanks to you oh, well, um, you're welcome so thank you. Um, <laughs> what you're doing is at least it's definitely making a difference with me. Um, cool. So I imagine it's making a difference with other people. But what is inclusivity? Well, the bottom line is inclusive practices. Um, I mean, it comes from the root include, basically, right? You know, like so. The, the the gist of it overall is you want everybody to feel like they belong and that they are represented and that they can identify with the, you know, the practices or the narratives or whatever goes under practices in a classroom situation, whether that's, you know, your teaching pedagogy, whether that's the materials themselves that you bring in, whether that's the institutional policies that are in place, whether that is, you know, the activities that you do with the students themselves. The point is, is that all learners and teachers, well, humans, generally speaking, um, feel as though they they are meant to be in that space, right? So, um, and so when when we look at a variety of those aspects that I just sort of listed off, you can find um, areas when you look critically that you you hadn't realized are just completely 
either wiping off an entire identity or saying something very reductive about that identity and what does that say to everybody that's there or you know making something really beige or whitewashed whatever you want to call it so that it's not even realistic and so um my my goal with this book specifically the book was to improve the way people um view and write materials so i mean that's just one aspect of inclusive practices and inclusivity right um, but if you want to like go down the list of identifying some groups and, and people that are normally oppressed or underrepresented um you, you hit sort of three of the main ones, right? Um, and I wouldn't disagree with you, you know, a year ago, Harry, but um, obviously, you know, ability is another aspect that we we need to think about. And that encompasses neurodivergence, um, at, you know, as well as a variety of other um, situations uh, and qualities, but also, you know, body type, uh, you know, socioeconomic class, employment status, um, whether you're, um, I guess, I mean, I was going to say writing materials in a way that people can actually use them, but that, that sort of falls into accessibility. So, I mean, there's a variety of different things, not only race and, race and ethnicity, not only LGBTQ, obviously, but those are obvious, you know, tend to be the ones that sort of jump at people initially. And so, one thing that I noticed um, at conference talks, you know, quite a long time ago now was that all of the talks tended to be focusing on um, the heteronormativity of materials and practices more so than anything else. And that's great because obviously, I mean, I have a vested interest in <laughs> improving the lives of LGBTQ um, learners, but um, it, uh, it also, made you realize that there are if you open your twitter account and you you know listen to a variety of people not just one group of people you'll find actually that there's a wide variety of underrepresented groups actually and you know i mean you don't even have to do it on twitter right you just look at the news and you can see uh, you know lots of voices that need to be heard and so that um opened my eyes too you know to move focus away from just myself uh, and my own underrepresentation and try to look at it from a wider variety of people out there so that I can do justice to what is inclusive practices, you know, that is going to improve it for everybody, not just, you know, queer people. So, yeah. I have put the link to the, the incredible, fantastic book, uh, How to Write Inclusive Materials in the, uh, in the chat, I'll put it in the description as well for people who are listening back later. Um, I was I was speaking at a round table not long ago with somebody who who you worked with with Zarina Suwan, mm -hmm. um, and something she contributed she to the book. Just FYI, she's a contributor. She did yeah. indeed. Yeah, she did indeed. Um, and something she mentioned during that round table really jumped out at me, um, and it's it's in regards to to ability, I guess. Um, and she mentioned, you know, kids who are kids, students who are colorblind. And it's not something I had ever thought of in mm -hmm. my entire life. I'd, I'd thought about students with dyslexia because there's, you know, a lot, a fair, not enough, but a fair number of materials. And there's mm. 
a, a bit of awareness about dyslexic students, but I had, mm -hmm. it never once crossed my mind that you know, I might have a, a, a student that was colorblind in my class. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, I, I, I am, a, I would say, hobbyist graphic designer. So color and pattern and all that stuff is a huge sort of visual thing for me. I, I love those things. And during that sort of side of things, I started, I've, I've heard actually about the colorblindness bit and going like, you know, are my designs actually visible in the way that I intend them to be visible to everybody out there? And that's obviously not the case um, in, in every situation. And you bring up that as an example. I um, one of the first ones that I had that was made me aware inclusive practices is not just about queer people um, was maybe about 10 years ago. I was doing a conference talk locally and you know how you make your slides all pretty and what have you and sure colorblindness is something to think about there. But a woman came up to me during this right before the session and said, actually, I have visual um, uh, problems with my, my site. I can't see small print. So can you make this, the font bigger on your slides? I just thought I would come and tell you that before you get going. And I, it had never occurred to me at that point that I can't use, you know, what I thought was a reasonable size of font in my, in my slides. And um, I had to just sort of go through it and go like, oh my gosh, now I have to go through all these slides very quickly and just up the font size to like 40 instead of, mm -hmm you know, 22. And that makes a huge difference in the way the slides look. And so I was a little flustered at the time, but it, um, I was very much appreciative because it made me realize, ah, this is an aspect I need to pay attention to in my slides. And now you go, okay, well, that actually spills over into a lot of other things that I produce, not just my slides. So dyslexic fonts or, or accessible fonts anyway, was, was one aspect of that. The color, um, as as you mentioned, um, is another aspect that I had to think about. You know, the, the there's just a, a whole variety, and it can seem a little overwhelming sometimes to to think about everything that you need to put in there, and and so as a result, you're gonna make mistakes, and and not everything's gonna be perfect, and that's fine. You know, you just acknowledge the mistake, and you go, okay, well next time I'll try better. I think a not to be long-winded, but a, another one that was brought to my attention um, on digital media in particular, which I have now made a huge concerted effort to always address, is alt text. And, um, you know, I had never really thought about the fact that, you know, when you put an image up, some people can't see it, you know, and that is a huge disadvantage to getting my message across to some people, you know, because obviously I want people to use Instagram just as an example. That's where some people get all of their information from me, but Twitter also. And, and so I really became very um, cognizant and made a very concerted effort now to like always put in alt text to the almost the maximum number of characters because that's what screen readers need in order to be able to interpret a visual that's there. And some people rely on that screen reader to actually get information. And I think it actually, not only is it an accessibility um, and inclusivity practice, but it's actually quite authentic too, because 
in a language learning scenario, alt text is like that, um, that activity, that sort of classic activity we used to do in, in, in language learning classes where I draw a picture and then your back is to me and then I describe the picture and then you draw the picture. It's basically that. And you're trying, I mean, you may not be practicing prepositions specifically, but you're trying to figure out what words and language can you write concisely, but also paints the, the best picture of what's in this image. And so whenever I see organizations now that post photos um, and in the images, there's words and that's what it is, is words. I just cringe a little bit because like a screen reader can't see that. And I mean, maybe newer Apple ones I've heard are starting to get better at that, but why not just put that text in the tweet itself or in the Instagram post itself, you know, so that they can read it and then use the image for something other than that or put it in the alt text. I mean, otherwise you're going to have, you know, the image with the text on it, then the alt text is going to be that text that's on there anyway. Why bother putting it in? I don't know. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's, um, that is a big thing that I've improved, I think, a lot lately. And so, you know, you, you go back and sometimes I forget. And then when I forget, I'm just like, oh, nuts. And so then I go back and I write, you know, I'm really sorry. Here's the actual alt text. And I give it a shot and try to remember next time. I think like, I got a few, a few things from that. I, I'm, I'm lazy. I need to do alt text more often. I, I, I apologize. And that's a teachable moment there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that I, I, I can see, like from from you, from a lot of people involved in in ELT, in, involved in teaching in general, are these kind of this acceptance of these teachable moments. I remember when I was a lot younger, a lot of my teachers had this kind of air of arrogance about them. Um, you know, they were the teacher; they knew everything, so they could never be wrong. Um, I do remember one teacher coming back to me and saying, you know. I don't actually know the answer, but I'll come back to you when I do. You know, this was obviously before he could just pull out his phone and check on Google, which mm. you know would have been would have been just as easy. But you know, it was that kind of moment for me, which had a huge impact on my life as a teacher. That you don't have to know everything, but it's not only mm. as a teacher, as a as a trainer, as as somebody who who creates materials. Um, I take these moments; they they are teachable moments, and I. I accept that I've done things not perfectly. You know, I accept that I've, uh, you know, I am still learning and we should always continue learning, you know, for the sake of ourselves, for the sake of our students as well. Um, And the other thing I got from that um, was that is a brilliant activity to do with students, to get them to write an alt text for their own Instagram post or for their friend's Mm. Instagram post. It sounds like an amazing activity, particularly with, you know, teens or university students, you know, that it's a super like good language stuff. focused activity. Like, honestly, the, I mean, and you're not good at it when you first do it because you don't realize that what you're writing isn't actually fully explaining what's in that picture until you give it to someone who doesn't see the picture, you know, that's the whole point. And so for me, I, the more you do it, just like everything, you know, you you get better and better and better at it. And you start to think, okay, what's necessary for me to put to make this easier for someone to hear and then visualize in their head. And that's, you know, not a simple, you know, 
there's white letters and it says this, you know, there's more to a picture than that, you know? And I think, you know, with Instagram, it, it takes like a huge concerted effort because I mean, that's the whole point of Instagram, right? Is images. So, you know, it's, if you, if you get in the practice of doing it there, you're going to get in the practice of doing it basically everywhere. But as you said, you know, admitting that you make mistakes and all that, it, that's just reality, right? That's true. Nobody's mm -hmm. perfect. And that, in fact, is an example of inclusive pedagogy because when you, one, one principle of that is, is to sort of value things equally in a sense. I mean, if I'm going to boil it down. So value people and practices and all sorts of things equally. And so if I have way more power than you do, in the classroom, that's not inclusive, is it, right? And you want to like give away that power where it's reasonable to do so. And one of those things is as a teacher, don't, you know, make yourself the gatekeeper unnecessarily of all knowledge. And you, you know, you're this superhuman who is way more knowledgeable than the students. That's just not true. I mean, maybe if with five-year-olds, it might be true, but not with you know, the vast majority of students. And to say you, you know, I mean, I actually don't know the answer to that, you know, as your teacher did, that's just reality. They didn't know the answer. Why lie about it and say, you know, well, actually, I'm going to just make something up. And that just increases a power dynamic that in a hierarchy that is not inclusive. And when we bring ourselves down to, or bring students up to, you know, being human the same as we are, then that is just one way of, you know, doing an inclusive pedagogy. That isn't sort of your standard that you would normally think of by like including a, you know, a black person in a picture, for example. You know, there's a, a lot more to it that's deeper and more structural than, or systemic, maybe that's a better word, than just, you know, your typical, like what you think is inclusive practices, maybe. Yeah, and I think, um... I think institutions are, you know, slowly, very slowly coming around to it. But my my problem with um, institutional policy, with inclusivity, as much as with sustainability, is how much of it is genuine and mm. how much of it is, well, this is a buzzword, so we definitely need to do this. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's the kind of area that, I don't want to say it worries me, but... Well, you can't really know until time's passed a little bit, right? So, the, you know, of course, at the moment, companies or institutions are going to respond to what they believe is the market's perspective on something. And that may end up being a tokenistic um, approach, or it might end up being something that is just a springboard for future change. And I hope it's the latter, you know, but you don't know that in initially. I, I do think rather than sort of admonishing an institution for putting out a statement regarding the environment or whatever, you know, you know inclusive practices we may be talking about, as well, that's just a empty words, blah, 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 you know, good. I'm glad they put out that statement because that's something, you know, that's more than there was when I was a kid, for example. And to put out that statement about, you know, being accepting of all people and naming, you know, gays, lesbians, 
transgender people, non-binary people, like even naming those people, um, all of us in a statement is way more visible than it was, you know, when I was a kid. And so I think that's a nice step, but no, we need to hold, you know, everybody accountable for what comes after that, you know? So if it's been a year and nothing has changed in your school regarding, you know, hiring practices, for example, even though they put out this statement that we're, you know, non-discriminatory and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then yeah, we need to like be critical, I think of, of that situation. Something you mentioned there was about, you know, when in the past. Um, I know in the UK, I was I was watching a talk at Tussauds France this weekend um, about LGBTQ in the classroom, um, and there was mention of how when I was at school, the presenter was the same age as me. Um, there was a law that you couldn't you couldn't promote uh, homosexuality at, at school. You know, it couldn't be promoted. So basically. You know, it couldn't be talked about. And I remember two incidents at my school, which were horrific incidents, like absolutely horrific incidents that that just got swept under the carpet in a way that left me feeling like so angry and so hopeless about the, the way things were being dealt with at school. Now, one of my best friends at school uh, came out when we were 16 um, and I went to an all boys school. And the amount of just it was endless bullying, basically, there was, you know, endless teasing and bullying and just people being awful because of this. Um, you know, and I, I went to the teachers. I said that it was an issue. And you can probably tell I'm not a particularly violent person, but it was one of the three times in my life in the end that I did actually, I, I lost it and I, mm. I, you know, with one of the guys that was endlessly teasing my friend after the school had done nothing about it, I, mm. I lost it. And, you know, with fisticuffs occurred. Um, I definitely didn't win the fight, um, but I, I did have one. And it was, um, and it was just for me, it was, it was horrible to see that the system did so little. Um, mm -mm. And the other incident that happened was on a rugby tour. And one of the, the boys who wasn't in, like, the rugby crew was attacked and um, had a deodorant can inserted in him um, huh. while on tour with the rugby team. And, again, this was something that, you know, my friend and I were talking about at home and my mum and his mum were outraged by this. And they went to the school and what the school said was... Oh, th this isn't true, and we'd rather you didn't spread this gossip when oh. it, it was, was true. true because he was a friend yeah. of mine. It happened. Mm. It was common knowledge within the school. Um, disgusting. I, absolutely, it was, and it it enraged me at that age. You know, to to see that kind of practice happening. I don't know if that would still happen with these new policies that have come in, with new rules that have mm. come in, with this raised awareness. I don't know if it would still happen. I hope that it wouldn't. Um, yeah, well, I mean, certainly there's a lower chance, I suppose. But, I mean, even culturally, we're a little bit different than we were whenever that was. But, yeah, for sure, it still happens, you know, in, in various places. But, you, you know, you, you bring up a 
valid point, which is we should totally emphasize that, you know, people in positions of power, even though I'm saying we need to try to decrease that power and level the playing field between stakeholders or whatever you want to call everybody that's involved. I hate that word, actually. Um, but um, the I had one experience when I was in high school, which was pivotal in, in terms of, thankfully, it was completely opposite result of what you just described. But I wasn't out in high school, um, but I was relentlessly teased for potentially being gay. And um, I can remember one of my high school teachers overheard um, a group of kids in class, you know, bullying me about this. And she said to them, you know, when people tease other people for being gay, that usually means that those people are questioning their own sexuality. And that completely diffused any future bullying because nobody from that side wanted to be seen as questioning their own sexuality. And it was just a perfect example of someone using their authority to step in and make a difference for someone who didn't have the power in that situation to make any difference. And I think that's just a, you know, one example of how, um, whether that's a teacher like us, you know, we have the power like that teacher does, or whether it's the school's policy or administration or even other, you know, learners in the classroom, somebody has power to step in and say something. And even though your choice of modes to deal with that, you know, violently might not have been the best choice, it was, it was still you doing the same thing. You know, you were, um, I'm sure that your friend appreciated it ultimately, you know, even though, you know, violence is never the answer, but in that situation, it was what you had available to you at the time, you know? And yeah, so- it was, you know, I look back on it and I, I think, you know, why, why did I do that? But I, I know why I did it because it was, you know, he was being relentlessly bullied and the school did nothing about it. So, yeah, for um, sure. which again, violence isn't the answer. Anybody who's listening and do insist that with your institution, if something is happening, uh, to do something about it. So we're going to shoot off for an advert very quickly. When we come back, we're going to talk a bit more um, about how to write inclusive materials. Um, and you're going to help everybody write more inclusive materials <laughs> and include more um, in- include more inclusivity in their classes. That sounds very strange. Um, We'll be back in about a minute. It's going to be a very powerful 30 minutes. (laughs) Indeed it is. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. We are back. We are into the the home straight, as it were, the final 30 <laughs> minutes. Although I'll be honest, I wish there were at least another 60 because 
Um, I know this show is made by teachers for teachers, but I'm quite selfishly learning an awful lot myself right now. Um, so, well, me too. Tyson, oh, that's, that's good to hear. Um, I'll, I'll be, Tyson can see that I've, I've got quite red cheeks at the moment. Um, I'm not sure if it's because I'm blushing because of that comment or simply because it's actually quite warm in here. Mm -hmm. and I forgot to take my hoodie off. Um, I'll go with the blushing. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I've put the link to the book in the, the chat, as I mentioned, and I, I will put it back in there again now um, for anyone who's just joined us. How to write inclusive materials. Now, I started following you probably about I three am... months before it came out. Sorry. Go on. I'm having, I can't hear you suddenly. You can't hear me? I can hear you. I can, hang on a second. Let me just, uh, maybe if I, un, if I unmute oh, myself. That's better. Here. I can I hear can you. Hear you. Oh, okay. There we go. I, I went in on Zoom there to, to make sure. There we go. Can you hear me again? Yeah, no, it was just getting tinny. And then I lost you and I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh, phew. Um, we're back. Um, the wonders of modern technology. Um, mm. So your book, um, I, I started following you, well, one of your books, obviously you've written two, um, the one we're talking about today though, I started following you I think maybe two or three months before it was released. So obviously you were, you had probably written it by that stage um, and it was, it was ready to, to be put out there. Um, what is your book all about? Uh, well, I mean, to to address your initial question, this book took me a long time to write. I mean, it was a pandemic, first of all. And I started it right at the very beginning of the pandemic, right before everything shut down. And um, I didn't realize the undertaking it would be, you know, that it would be such a massive thing. And it was honestly, for anybody out there who's you know, thinking I'm a experienced author or something like that, I'll let you know that I'm not. It was my first time to have editors like peering over my work very carefully and giving me feedback and comments. And so the place it started and the place it ended, you know, are very different places. And I'm very thankful for that. I mean, um, ELT teacher to writer actually were very, very helpful in, in, in helping me see things differently. But my book is, is primarily aimed at people who write materials for the ELT classroom. And that may be, you know, those who do it by trade, like that is their day job and that's great, but there, there's fewer of them than there are the sort of rest of us who are just teachers who put together our own materials. And so I'm addressing those, that group of people quite widely. And uh, I say that because I don't want to argue in favor of course books um, per se. And if I were writing, you know, this specifically to course book writers only, that would be what, you know, it sounds like I'm promoting. And I don't intend to promote any one type of platform or material. Um, so let's get that out of the way first. But uh, otherwise, I, I had put together a sample course book unit, incidentally. Um, not because I want to write a course book, but I wanted to show people, or publishers more specifically, that it, 
it might be possible to do a really nice looking course book on a language learning topic um, that's well produced and pedagogically sound, et cetera, and still include, you know, gay people, black people, South Asian people, deaf people, you know, people in wheelchairs, neurodivergent people, all sorts of people. Um, and don't be afraid of doing this. That was my sort of goal. And so in doing so, I had to decide what approaches I might take towards creating these materials. Um, and that led me down a path of trying to not only read about what other people had done before me or, or their thoughts um, on inclusivity before me, but also how I wanted to present materials writing in a basically an accessible way to people who aren't professional materials writers. And so I had to kind of figure out what ways I was going to do that in a book form. And what made sense to me was to look at, you know, the aspects or the considerations we make when we're writing materials, like um, the images that are used, like the voice that we take, um, like the audio, the text we choose, all those kind of things and talk about each of those things from an inclusive perspective and what it might mean regarding each of them. And then to present to a couple of approaches to, you know, bringing that all together into an actual lesson. And how would you take those considerations now that you've made them and approach materials writing on a realistic basis from an inclusive perspective. And so that's what drove the kind of layout of the book. So I start off with talking about what inclusive practices means um, and who's involved in inclusive practices, because that's sort of the foundational aspect you and I started this whole thing on and what it means in materials writing and to situate it that, you know, this is just one aspect of inclusive practices materials. This is not the be all and end all. And it's not teachers responsibility solely. We have to like have, you know, we're a cog in a wheel and um, then I went, each chapter focuses on a different consideration that you would need to, to make first and gives a bunch of tasks throughout each of the chapters to help readers give it a shot and see, you know, do some reflection and, and see if they can come to an understanding of what it is that I'm talking about in that particular chapter. So, um, you know, an example when I'm talking about um, representation. I talk about different stock image photo sites where you might source visuals from and how visuals are an important component of inclusive practice. I mean, it's obviously, obviously, right? And uh, how might you find visuals using search terms? And, you know, the, the, the things you need to consider about what a visual is saying to the reader about who's there and who's not there and et cetera. So there's tasks related to do that where they, a reader would actually go to a stock image site as I've suggested them to do, do some search terms, come back, reflect on it, see what it is that um, they found. Um, so that's sort of what the first few chapters are. And then the last, not quite the last two, but the latter half of the book is, um, a usualization approach to inclusive practice or inclusive materials writing um, and a, a complementary approach called a more disruptive approach. Um, and that gives people the foundations of, of 
sort of how to bring it all together in, a, in an actual lesson in this way and then in a, in a second way. So I can go into them in more, some more detail if you want, but that's sort of how the book is laid out and that is why the book was written in the way it was. And um, I believe that's what you asked me. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, a couple of things from that. For me, the, the first, my first port of call was the images. Now, when I was reassessing my materials uh, creation, um, it was the images straight away. It's the first thing that you can change super easily. You know, you yeah. can look and go, oh, I've got a picture of, a, you know, a, a little girl, a little white girl watering flowers. It doesn't need to be a little white girl watering flowers. It could be mm -hmm. anybody watering flowers. You know, it could be any person at all. Right? And, you know, it is that don't just go to the one stock image site. Look for the other places as well. Um, and the term that you use there, I love it, usualization. Um, you know, I, I've been a fan of yours and I've completely stolen this term from you as opposed to normalization because, you well, know. I, st I mean, let's be fair. I stole it from someone else. So don't just say it. it's not just mine, right? Sue Sanders actually is the one who started that. And, I, you know, to be fair, in the book, I do say it's hers. It's not mine. I've just adopted you it. You do, so. you do. FYI, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that, it's so important that you know we don't call it in this case normalization i know it's it's different in terms of sustainability the term normalization for mm -hmm. people doing sustainable acts again that's you know that's okay but normalization of you know inclusive behavior and be why would it be normal being usual is a, a much better yeah well for sure i mean phrase. the the um not to cut you off but um in inclusive practice, we're talking about like human qualities and characteristics and value, right? In in green echo stuff, that's not what you're referring to when you're talking about normalizing something. So I think that's why that distinction is made. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And there is there is a massive difference between the two, which is something I I really do love about it. Um, yeah, and, and I you know as I said, I've listened to you in the past and. And, and I've obviously read your book, and it's it's some that that really struck a chord with me. Like it just suddenly, I, and it is the human aspect of things. Like these are people, you know. And everybody mm -hmm. always says, uh, I get I get a bit angry when people say, you know, oh, I don't see color. You know, everybody is equal. Yeah, everybody should be equal. Absolutely, mm -hmm. we really mm -hmm. should be. But saying you don't see color and that everybody should be equal, you know you're kind of ignoring the issues and the problems that, that people have gone through, you know, the people yeah. that continue to go through. And it, I'm trying my hardest not to swear here. It really upsets me. It, may, it makes me <laughs> quite angry. And that's, you know, the, I think the equity side of, you know, DEI as opposed to equality is, is really important um, that mm -hmm. we do look at that, that we don't just, you know, say, no, everyone is equal. We're all treated the same. I treat everyone the same. Not everyone is equal. Yeah, for sure. That's hard to, I mean, I, I come from a place where I said that myself at one point, I'm sure. And, um, absolutely. Me too. So, so, you know, you, you get it, you know, people are starting at this journey at different points and I mean, some are just refusing and using that as an excuse, but I think other people that say, you know, I don't see color. I think, Oh, I was once like you, you know, like, I get what you're trying to say here, but let me just like take my word for it. It isn't helpful to say stuff like that because you you're talking about an ideal 
privileged perspective where you have the affordance to not see color in and that might be great if everybody were in the same position but you have to acknowledge that everybody doesn't have the same amount of privilege and that saying you know or per persisting with a perspective like well why don't everybody just ignore race you know that's really just showing a certain amount of ignorance at this point that you don't feel like race impacts someone's experience at all and you know, that's very nice of you for you, but it does for other people, you know. <laughs> well, exactly, you know, and it's, you know, even as much as, so I, I live in, in Seville and um, it's it's basically, you know, it's it's very, very white here. It's very white. There mm -hmm. is a, quite a large gypsy community. Um, and I can even, I can see it in going to the supermarket. Now, if I go to the supermarket near me in my area, there's one security guard. If I go to the supermarket in the area that's, you know, closer to the, the, the gypsy population, there are 15, 20, 25. And then other people saying, no, I don't see colour. It's like, you know, people, every single person that walks in there from a gypsy background is looked at as if they're going to steal something. So yeah. I'm sorry, but I could just as easily steal from the supermarket. In fact, I could steal an awful lot easier than they could steal because people would look at me and think, oh, it's a middle-class white man. He certainly wouldn't steal. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's that kind of thing that... that yeah, there's a credibility that we automatically have, you know, that is unfairly given to us, you know, for sure. And so you're completely, you're completely right. And, and that's an excellent scenario. I mean, in Toronto, we, um, we've we're going through continuing to go through a reckoning regarding this because, you know, Canada from all intents and purposes has a certain, shall I say, idyllic sort of view of multiculturalism um, from not only within, but from without, I think. And the fact that we, you know, have this insanely horrible and loathable history with indigenous culture here, and we're reckoning with that now, you know, it, it, it's really making a clash um, between perception and reality of, of Canadian history. And so, you know, the same kind of things that are happening in the UK to some extent, you know, statues are coming down, things are getting renamed. And some people hate that and some people are like, oh, good, finally, you know, but to acknowledge that this is happening is a, is a, is what's going on right now. And not dissimilarly, you know, the, the black community here has also really been quite vocal about how police have been um, unfairly, you know, you know, carding them, like look, asking for ID and following, following them around, unlike, you know, a white person walking at night kind of thing. And that's been a bitter pill for people to swallow, I think, some people. So, and yeah, so you, you mentioned previously... Um, about the book being mainly for ELT materials writers, which absolutely it is. But I really think there's, mm -hmm. so, sorry, writers and teachers, yeah. Um, people who create materials in general. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like you say, teachers and, and writers and well, all, all sorts of people within the industry. Now, I think it's vital as well that this doesn't, you know, stay within ELT. ELT is brilliant because 
it has that broad range. You know, you can open a textbook and because of the grammar structures that it follows, you know, you have to talk about sport, you have to talk about science, you have to talk about history, you have to talk about all these different things. So mm -hmm. within an ELT textbook, you have all the other subjects. Now, what I think really desperately needs to happen is this does need to, you know, it needs to sift into all of the other subjects. Now, something I'm really keen on, on seeing it is particularly in history. Like, as you're mentioning about, you know, Canada there facing up to its, its past um, and the UK, which it did um, not long ago. And I don't necessarily think looking back and demonizing all the people that did awful things, how we perceive them to be awful things now, um, but celebrating the people who weren't celebrated back then, finding those people, finding those, you know, black inventors or those female scientists or, um, or members of the LGBTQ uh, um, community and celebrating those now and really, you know, with pride months and, and you know, Black History mm -hmm. Month and stuff like that, this needs to just be in every single subject and not, just for a month. It needs to be within the syllabus, totally. it needs to be within all syllabi and to be mm -hmm. integrated within um, textbooks and and not one section on it, but mm -hmm. within. And I think that's something your your book really helps with, that it isn't just, here's a section, learn about it there, now we'll move on. We've talked about the LGBTQ community, yeah, for sure. now we can focus on something else. That's like like one of the four main principles of inclusion that I write in there is to not isolate, you know, under one representative, for example, you know, and for sure, you're absolutely right um, with regards to broadening outside of ELT. Of course, ELT is a perfect place to sort of start this because many of us have sort of an innate interest in diversity, you know, because our classrooms are full of a wide variety of people from different cultures and backgrounds and so on. So I think there's a natural tendency um, in this case for ELT to kind of be a, I was going to say cesspool. That's not what I meant, but like, um, like ground zero to some degree of, of spreading. But I, that's not to say that work isn't being done in K to 12 or, you know, mainstream education, if you want to call it that as well. Um, and as I said, or, or you said too, everybody said, um, <laughs> the diversifying you know, the sources from which you get material from or inspiration from, whether that is for narratives that you're including in your ELT materials or whether it is your required reading for a university course in biology, the voices that are being included need to be sort of equalize with all the other voices that have sort of by default always been the ones that have been there. And that is the way or one way it broadens outside or I've seen it broaden outside of um, ELT. I mean, and that's quite often under a sort of label of decolonializing mm -hmm. curriculum, you know, and, but it's the same principles. And it is, for me, it's that people being able to see, you know, students being able to see people like them within mm -hmm. the materials. Um, and, you know, not just in a picture, not just in, you know, this one section, but, you know, throughout materials. And, and I'm not saying, you know, we have to write a textbook that only has 
pictures of people who aren't traditionally in textbooks. You know, well, we need to have yeah, everybody represented, you mm -hmm. know, and it needs to be in a consistent way. I got into now, I, as I mentioned before, I don't like fighting. I also don't really like arguing. You know, I try and avoid arguing at all costs, but I, I somehow managed to find myself in some arguments. Um, I usually can control myself and be rational about it. Something I've learned through teaching with patience and, you know, being able to rationally talk through a situation. Good for you. That's hard. Um, it is really hard because the other day I, well, the other day, it was a couple of weeks back, I absolutely lost it with somebody who was complaining that Netflix had too much diversity in it and it wasn't oh, realistic. Anymore. I remember this. Um, yeah, and I just, I, I hit the roof. Um, and, you know, that's not the way to, to win an argument. That's not the way to educate somebody by, you know, screaming and shouting. But that's how I ended up um, reacting, which, again, I'm not particularly proud of my reaction. Can't um, see. I remember seeing your reaction, but I do remember that comment from somebody. Yeah. And, and um, I had the same visceral initial reaction as you, you know, actually carried out you know, as well. But I, my, like you, I think, you know, I've, I've learned, I get a little bit more from not being aggressive, I guess, like more buy-in, I guess, sometimes from not being, you know, if you put, if people get their back up or, get in defensive mode, then it doesn't really accomplish too much. And exactly. I'm certainly not, you know, saying we need to carry or cater to the, you know, the white privilege or the white fragility, so to speak, of some people. That's not what I'm saying at all. I mean, we don't need to tiptoe around the issue to make other people feel comfortable. But at the same time, you know, thinking of, okay, what, what is it they're trying to say here? And how can I respond to that in a way that sort of shuts it down, um, but is not, you know, cat-like. <laughs> so, exactly, so, not just screaming yeah. at them, they're wrong. Yeah, but, it, you know, it's funny that you brought up that example, because one criticism I have heard regularly is, is just that, you know, that, you know, how many gay people need to appear in your materials for it to be too many or, or you know, whatever, or any, I mean, substitute X, person in there for, for gay people. And I had to struggle with that proportion myself. Like, what was the answer to that? You know, because people ask it often enough and some very genuinely ask it, not, you know, in a pissy way. Um, whoops, sorry. And um, I've realized that we're talking about humans here. We're not talking about pieces of cake, for example. So like, it doesn't have to be, you know, Here's our society, and 7.3% are identify as LGBTQ, and 9.6% identify as Black, and therefore we have to have that exact proportion in our materials to represent. That's not how this needs to work, you know, because we're humans. We're not talking about like divvying up a piece of cake proportionally to to everybody in society. My LGBTQness is just as valid as your straightness and whiteness and so on. Why does that have to be, you know, proportionate? It's like, oh, well, you're going to have this number. That's still ranking you above me, even if it's proportionate. We don't have to be that strict about it, I don't think, you know. And 
if you think about the idea that straight white male um, narratives have dominated for such a long time, I think you can like take a back seat for a little while, you know, not be erased, but just take a back seat, you know, and so that's fine. In in Absolutely. It's been centuries, you know, it's literally mm. been centuries. Yeah. So. so this one year that gay people are all over the place, like, sorry about your luck, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe it's about time, you know. Yeah. Um, so we're coming close to the end of the show. Um, I was wondering if you could give us, I'm not going to give you a number of tips because it doesn't need to be quantified, but some mm. tips on how to inclusive. Okay. Um, I think the number one thing would be to take a look at the materials that you are using now, as opposed to creating a whole bunch of new things. Take a look at the material you're using now and collectively across the materials, not one specific lesson, but collectively across the materials, look at the images, the audio, and the texts that are involved in those materials and do a kind of classification. Who is included in all of those things, most predominantly. Whose stories do you hear and so on? Get a sense about whether or not I'm even saying the truth based on your own experience of your materials. So I think start there. That will give you a sense as to who is missing. But then in your classes, you know, bring it up with students. Have the students identify you know, who's missing, whose stories are missing. How is someone not being served by the, the materials that you're actually using in the classes? And give them some agency into determining how inclusive your materials are. I mean, you don't have to lead them to say, like, are there any gay people? You know, like, you don't have to do something like that. But, you know, say, do you see yourselves in these materials? Like, start there and get the you know students to give you some input as to how they feel about the materials that you've been using this whole time and whether or not it represents them or would they like something different? You know, are there different topics even, you know, that um, would be more up their alley to talk about, you know, start with that, I think is a good starting point rather than like going, Oh, you know what? I have to like be really look at all my future materials and like put one person here and one person there. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, I would say. So that would be my sort of main tip. Include the learners initially and then, you know, do one thing at a time. Uh, get my book and read it and do all the activities in it because that's going to be helpful. <laughs> and then... Definitely the best idea. And then tip number one, slowly, get the book. Slowly two, work things, yeah, yeah, slowly work things in, you know. Don't give yourself a bit of a break, you know. Like, it's not easy. We have a lot of responsibility as teachers as it is especially during a pandemic year and or years. And so, you know, this is another thing to be cognizant of and try your best, you know, but, you know, in, in five years, we'll let's revisit each other and see how well you're doing. And if things haven't changed um, because you haven't used the power that you have available to you to change them, then, you know, we'll have some words. Yeah. I think um, for me, I absolutely love that point of asking students to look, asking students to look in there and see what they see is missing. Because at the end mm. of the day, we're here to serve our students. We're here to, mm. to educate our students. 
And if it's obvious to our students that there are like huge gaps missing there, then it should mm -hmm. be obvious to us as well. Um, mm -hmm. And we need to cater to their needs. And, you know, people have said to me that, you know, it's not my place to tell people whether they should be sustainable or not be sustainable or how they're treating the planet is good or bad. And I don't do that. You know, it, mm -hmm. I don't go out and tell people, you know, you ate a steak, so you owe the earth 15,000 litres of water. Um, that's not my approach on it. I, I try and go out there and raise people's awareness um, of issues at hand and hopefully get them to think about it themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, perfectly true. Just, with, just like with students, if they do something themselves, they're more likely to be invested in it and want to do it. And if you just tell them a whole bunch of information and they never practice it or try it themselves, and it just it hits a couple of people, but it doesn't hit most of them, right? So it's a good adage, I would say. Fantastic. Mm. Um, so we have got 90 seconds left, a bit less now. Oh my God. I mentioned that we had 90 seconds. Left. I know, I can't believe it. Um, I have to say, so I, I mentioned this to you a while back um, and you said the 24th of November and at the time I was like that's so long away hmm. um, and now it's come around and it's flown by it's um, it's been fantastic now for me personally this has been an excellent um, CPD session as it were um, me too I've learned a lot so thank you very much for that um, also I would like to reiterate to everybody who's listening do get the book, um, not just because Tyson wrote it, but do get it because it is very useful. Um, it will help, particularly if you're writing ELT materials as a teacher or as a writer. So Tyson, it's been a pleasure. Um, it's been great to meet you, as it were. I know, um, right? Maybe I'll see you in Belfast. Yep, that's the plan. Well, I mean, we did get the proposal acceptance today. Everybody. We so did indeed. Oh, you know, we did. Official. Congratulations. Yep. Um, Thank you. You too. If, if there was one for you. Yeah, there was. There was. <laughs> okay. <yeah>. Congratulations. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tyson. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.